Matthew 15, verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 21. At the beginning of this year, the president and his administration proposed a series of tax cuts with the expectation that such measures would jumpstart the economy. And after the tax cuts were approved by Congress, a number of corporations announced they would increase wages and offer bonuses to employees. For example, the Walmart Corporation offered full-time employees a $1,000 bonus. Many other companies, Visa, for example, followed suit and also offered bonuses of $1,000. This did not sit well with some politicians. And one politician in particular, who I will identify only as a former Speaker of the House, famously described these $1,000 bonuses as crumbs. Now, I suppose there are a number of reasons why someone might characterize a check for $1,000 as a crumb, but it might have to do something with the fact that the person who originally made this comment happens to be a multimillionaire. But for those who are in need, for those who have difficulty making ends meet, those are very valuable crumbs. Today, we will meet a woman who is in desperate need. And she is in need not of money, but of healing. And she will appeal to Jesus for his help. And she believes that Jesus' power and authority are so great that even the crumbs that fall from the master's table will supply all of her needs. Let's go, please, to Matthew 15, verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. As Jesus goes to this region of Tyre and Sidon, it presents an important connection to the previous passage. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees were challenging Jesus because his disciples were not performing the ceremonial hand-washing as laid out by the elders. In their minds, it was Jesus was showing a clear disregard for Judaism's purity laws. But now, Matthew reports that Jesus, along with his disciples, are on their way to Gentile territory. If the scribes and Pharisees knew about this, they would have found yet another reason to condemn Jesus. Tyre and Sidon are two cities just north of Israel. They are located in the region or country that we know today as Lebanon. As Jesus travels to this Gentile region, it signals 
the end of the Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry. He has been largely operating in the region of Galilee, most, uh, most specifically the town of Capernaum. Now as he travels north to this Gentile region, it signals the end of his Galilean phase of his ministry. And after his time here, he will then head south toward Judea and ultimately to his final destination, to a hill called Golgotha in Jerusalem. As Jesus travels with his disciples to the region of Tyre and Sidon, we know that ministering to the people there was not his first priority. In Mark's parallel account of this event, Mark tells us in the seventh chapter of his gospel that upon his arrival there, Jesus wanted no one to know of it, but could not remain unnoticed. It would seem that Jesus had gone there primarily to spend time alone with his disciples to give them further teaching and to prepare them for the difficulties that lie ahead. But as we've seen before, Jesus' reputation precedes him. His fame as a teacher, and especially as a healer, are well known. And wherever he goes, people recognize him, and they want his healing. And so if we look now at verse 22, Matthew signals to us that something surprising and something unexpected is about to happen. And how we know that? Because he begins with the word, behold. Verse 22. Matthew begins, verse 22, by declaring, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. As a Gentile and as a woman, it is highly irregular for her to come to a Jewish man for help. But the reason for her coming is absolutely clear. And it's not surprising why she would come. She's desperate. Her daughter is severely demon-possessed. If we've spent any time in the New Testament, we know that it was a common practice for the Jews to avoid contact with the Gentiles. Having contact with a Gentile would render a Jew ceremonially unclean. Gentiles were seen as a spiritual contaminant and therefore treated with disdain, even disgust. And it is not surprising that because of this treatment and attitude toward the Gentiles, the people of the surrounding nations would respond to the Jews with reciprocal disdain. And so for this Gentile woman to come to Jesus for help takes Matthew and the other disciples by surprise. 
But let's also notice that this woman is not identified as a Gentile, but as a Canaanite. She's not identified as a Gentile, but as a Canaanite. This term, Canaanite, was used frequently in the Old Testament to describe the various pagan people groups who were the enemies of Israel. While the term is used frequently in the Old Testament, let's notice that this is the only time in the New Testament that someone is identified as a Canaanite. Now, this term Canaanite was not used by the Jews in the first century in Jesus' day to refer to the Gentiles. They didn't call the Gentiles Canaanites. But it seems that Matthew has resurrected this term to highlight the fact that this woman is not just a Gentile, like so many Romans, so many Jews, uh, so many Greeks. She instead is a descendant of ancient Israel's original and longtime enemies, Canaanites. And for such a person to come to Jesus for help is surprising. It's unexpected. But what would be even more surprising and even more unexpected is if Jesus decided to help this Canaanite woman. Let's look more closely at what she says. If we look again at verse 22, we read this. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Again, the fact that a Canaanite woman would call upon a Jewish man for help is surprising. But what is even more surprising is the way she addresses Jesus. She calls him Lord and son of David. As she cries out to Jesus and refers to him as Lord, we have no reason to think she's using the term in the way we would. When we refer to Jesus as Lord, we do so because we acknowledge his divinity that he is God incarnate, God come in the flesh. It is more likely that she is using the term Lord as a sign of politeness, of respect, much like today we might refer to a dignitary as sir. I've used this before, but you've seen the movies from the Middle Ages and people refer to their higher-ups as Lord, This is the kind of um, uh, way she's using this term properly, uh, probably as Lord. But at the same time, the fact that she uses the term Lord in conjunction with this clear messianic title, Son of David, makes clear that she intends her address as something much more than a gesture of politeness. 
at the very least, as she appeals to Jesus as Lord and as Son of David, she is acknowledging his royalty. With these two titles, she is acknowledging that he is Israel's messianic king. This is a confession that most in Israel, that most of the Jews in Israel were too stubborn to make, that Jesus is their messianic king. She calls him Lord and uses the messianic title, Son of David. And what's more, as she refers to him as Lord, all the evidence that is going to follow points to the fact that she calls him Lord with the confident belief that he has the power and the authority to grant her request as Messianic. She has heard the news that this Jesus of Nazareth has power over the natural world and power over the supernatural world. He has the power to calm the storms of the sea. He has the power to free people from the demons of darkness. And because of his power and authority, she comes with two requests. She asks for mercy. She cries out, have mercy on me, son of And she hopes that if he will show her mercy, perhaps he will grant her second request, which is the healing of her daughter, who is demon-possessed. In fact, she is very demon-possessed, severely demon-possessed, Matthew says. Now, as she cries out to Jesus and pleads for his mercy, the commentator James Boyce says that we can, at this point, make two observations. First, we can conclude that she has come to realize that her pagan gods are worthless. The false gods of her people can do nothing to help her or to free her daughter from this demon possession. In fact, we will decide, we will conclude that her false gods have gotten her into this mess in the first place. And we may further observe that as this woman turns away from her false gods and turns to Jesus, we are witnessing the most crucial type of repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin and turning turning away from the false gods of this world and turning to Jesus, turning to Christ alone. The second observation we will make is this. It concerns the basis of her appeal. The basis of her appeal. What is the basis of her appeal? This is mercy. Which tells us that she knew she didn't deserve She didn't didn't do anything that would cause Jesus to help her or to heal her daughter. 
by definition, to appeal to the mercy of another person means that we've done nothing to deserve his mercy. So she has come empty-handed. Jesus said in the opening Beatitudes earlier in Matthew, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the poor in spirit are those who know they come empty-handed. They have nothing to trade God for their salvation. It is only when we come empty-handed, knowing that we have nothing to give God in exchange for our salvation, that is when we are blessed with the kingdom of heaven. When we recognize that salvation is by faith. Let's go on, please, to verse 23. To hear Jesus' response. Or more accurately, a, a lack of a response. Look at 23. He answered her not a word. This may shock us. Based on what we know about Jesus, he meets her passionate and humble appeal with silence. Knowing what we do about the love and compassion of Jesus, we would expect him to immediately respond to her appeal, not give her the silent treatment. But let's imagine the first readers of Matthew's gospel. Who were the first readers of Matthew's gospel? Well, they were predominantly Jews. And to them, this is precisely the response they would expect. They would assume, after centuries of inappropriate cultural training, that the Jewish Messiah would ignore the pleading of a pagan Gentile. What's more, but Jesus... Listen, don't miss this. Jesus does not operate according to the expectations of man. Jesus operates according to the faith. Which tells us that he must be doing this, this silent treatment, let's call it. He must be doing this for another reason. That reason will will reveal itself in just a moment. But it is clear from what happens next that Jesus' disciples fully support Jesus' seeming, seemingly to ignore this woman's pleas. Notice now that while Jesus reacts to the woman's pleading with silence, the disciples are not silent. Let's see, look what goes on with them at 23. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. Now, a major reason they want her sent away is because of how she's crying. The verb tense in the Greeks describes her crying out continuously. In other words, over and over again, she's shouting out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, son of David, have mercy. She won't stop. On and on, she's going on with this. We can say with almost certainty that Jesus is pleased with this persistence. On another occasion, the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus told his disciples a parable, quote, show them that they should always pray, not 
That is the parable of the persistent widow who wouldn't stop pleading with the town judge until he gave her his response. But back to the woman in today's passage. While Jesus is certainly pleased with her persistence, the disciples are not. She is dogging Jesus' steps. She's, she's hounding him to gain his attention. And the disciples find this constant pleading of the Canaanite woman downright annoying. As one commentator puts it, theirs is a self-centered annoyance. Look at this detail. Even though the woman is crying out to Jesus, notice how the disciples characterize her pleading. They say, she's crying out after us. Oh, she's not crying out after them, but they are annoyed by her pleading. And so annoyed with this woman and probably harboring feelings of resentment that have been taught by generations of inappropriate prejudice, they urge Jesus, send her away. In other words, get rid of her. Get rid of her. If we look now at verse 24, it will seem as though Jesus agrees with them and is ready to comply with their urging to get rid of her. Look at 24, please. He says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Bottom line, I was sent to the Jews, but not to the Gentiles. Jesus puts into words what was implied by his silence. Now let's remember Jesus used these same words back in chapter 10. Remember, Jesus was going to send his disciples out for some short-term mission trips by themselves. He told them, don't take any gold for your money belt, don't put any food in your bag, and don't take extra tunics for yourself. It's going to be a short-term trip. Just trust God's provision. And then he said, to his disciples, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus is now applying to himself what he earlier commanded his disciples. And in both, case, both cases, the meaning's clear. Jesus had come for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. Now at this point, it might seem that the case is closed. And if this were the only interaction that Jesus had with the Gentiles, we might conclude that this woman's cause is now hopeless. But we know that Jesus has had other encounters, plural, with the Gentile world before this point. Most notably, his interaction with the Roman centurion. Remember, the Roman officer came to Jesus asking for healing for one of his servants. And without hesitation, Jesus immediately volunteered to come with the centurion and heal his servant. But the centurion responded with great humility. and He said to Jesus, I am not worthy to have you in my home. And so the centurion said to Jesus, Jesus, simply say the word. You have authority, just like I have authority over men. You just say the word and people will do 
but you say, say the word and my servant will be healed. Which Jesus replies, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. It is then that Jesus issues a remarkable prophecy. Listen very carefully. He issues a remarkable prophecy regarding the future of the Gentiles. He says to the Roman centurion, Jesus says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So how do we harmonize these two seemingly opposite statements? Jesus says he's come only for Israel, and yet at the same time he says that many from the Gentile nations will join the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven. How do we harmonize those two seemingly opposite statements? Here's the answer. Jesus' first priority was to Israel, God's chosen people. But God's plan would also bring salvation to the Gentiles. It has always been his plan. And Israel would be part of that plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Let's not forget God's word to the patriarch In the grand conclusion of the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth shall be that blessing would ultimately come through the son of David, through the seed line, the messianic line. That line came through the son of David. His name is Jesus Christ, Messiah of Israel, who is also the Messiah, Savior of the Gentiles. We are now faced with an important question. If the Gentiles are part of God's salvation plan, meaning God always intended to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom, and Jesus has ministered to the Gentiles earlier in his ministry, why does he first treat this woman with silence and then tell her he's only come for the Jews? Well, here's the best explanation. Testing her faith. Testing her faith. Now, she has already shown considerable faith already. Her faith was evident when she cried out to Jesus, pleading for mercy and confident that he could heal her daughter. Her faith is demonstrated by the fact that, like the centurion, she comes believing that Jesus has the power, he's got the authority to cure her daughter if he wills it. But for reasons that are known only to Jesus, he will test this woman's faith. He will put an obstacle. He will he'll put a barrier between her and the granting of her request. And in regard to this barrier, we'll call it a temporary barrier, in regard to this barrier, John MacArthur has an astute comment 
about Jesus' actions. He says this, Jesus puts up this barrier not to keep her away, but to draw her closer. I like that. Jesus puts up this barrier not to keep her away, but to draw her closer. You see, he issues an initial denial in order to test her faith, to see how badly she wants what she's asking for. And when she continues to pursue him, she will learn how desperately she needs Jesus. At the same time, the disciples, both then and now, will also learn an important lesson, value of persistent faith, to pray always and not give up. Let's look, please, at verse 25. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. In her previous request, she was shouting from a distance. But now she comes closer. Look, she came and worshipped him. She comes closer. She makes an up, uh, up close, personal, intimate appeal. She came and worshipped him. The Greek word that is translated for us as worshipped in the King James literally means to fall down before. The Greek word means to fall down before. Sometimes, depending on the context, it is translated as worship. But because it is very unlikely that this woman is fully aware of Jesus' divine nature, at this point she doesn't realize that this is God incarnate in front of her. And therefore, the the NIV's translation's probably better. The NIV has the woman came and knelt before him. But at the same time, knelt is inadequate. Because it doesn't really capture her desperation or her bodily posture. Remember, she fears for her daughter's life. And so this goes far beyond some kind of polite kneeling before the king. Before, she cried out for mercy. Now what I think is happening here is she throws herself to the ground because she is throwing herself on Jesus' mercy. Before she pled for mercy, now she throws herself on the mercy of Jesus. And as she throws herself upon Christ's mercy, she once again appeals to him as Lord. It shows she is convinced that he is Lord over the supernatural world. She believes that he has the power and the authority to heal her daughter. And so flat on her face, with nothing to offer him, and dependent only on his mercy, she cries out, Lord, help me. At this point, Jesus makes a startling reply. And at first glance, his reply is is rude and antagonistic. Look at 26. But he answered and said, 
It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Jesus' answer comes in the form of a parable. And we can immediately identify its key terms. The bread represents Jesus' messianic blessing, all that he has to give. The children represent the Jewish people who are the intended recipients of this bread or messianic messianic blessing. The dogs, on the other hand, we know who they are. The dogs represent the Gentiles. Gentiles are any non-Jew. And so if you're wondering if Jesus is parabolically referring to this desperate woman as a dog, the answer is yes. And so after responding to her appeal for mercy, first with silence, then with a statement telling her that he's only come for the Jews and not for the Gentiles, now he refers to her, at least parabolically, as a dog. And all Gentiles, for that matter, as dogs. As the saying goes, he's now added insult to injury. Calling her a dog? Calling non-Jews dogs? Jesus is employing a common epithet that was used by the Jewish people of the Gentiles. The people of Israel often referred to Gentiles as dogs. And to understand why, we need to bear in mind that dogs were not treated in those days like pampered pets as they are today. If the people of Jesus' day could see how many Americans treat their dogs today, they would think us absolutely insane. Dressing dogs in little outfits? People pushing their little dogs around in strollers? Dressing them up in raincoats, feeding them gourmet meals prepared by a company called Fancy Feast. In the first century, and in this culture, most dogs roamed the streets as wild scavengers, fighting, snarling. To fight over garbage that was left in the street in order to survive, that's what dogs did. They fought each other to fight over scraps of garbage. In ancient Israel, dogs were thought of in the same way as we think or react to rats running down a city street. We, we think of rats, we, we see a rat, and we, we, we react with disgust as harbingers of disease. Well, that is how most Jews viewed Gentiles, with disgust, because they were not physical contaminants, but spiritual contaminants. And so the Jews looked upon uh, the Gentiles as dogs, as spiritual contaminants, dangerous. While the vast majority of dogs ran wild as vermin, there is evidence that some dogs were kept in the home in Jesus' day. Not as pets. Not as pampered pets like today. 
but as working animals. According to biblical and archaeological evidence, dogs were used in this time to herd sheep and to act as vicious guard dogs to protect the home. They were only working animals. They weren't pampered. They weren't pets. They were animals to work. Just as like you would make a, a sheep work, you would make a dog work. That was, that was its only use. Now that we have a better grasp of our terms, let's reconsider the parable. Jesus says to the woman, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Not everybody has little, but it, that does appear in the Greek. This is a, a, a guard dog, probably. A, guard, a dog to bark when there was somebody coming to the house that was not expected. Small dog doesn't eat much, but can make a loud noise when an intruder is coming. So the meaning of the parable is relatively straightforward. No responsible parent. Here's the meaning of the parable. No responsible parent is going to take bread out of the mouths of their hungry children in order to throw it to dogs. Parents are just not going to do that. You're not going to take bread away from your kid and throw it to a ravenous dog. The meaning, therefore, as it applies to this woman, is that as long as there were Jews for Jesus to care for, he cannot give her what she's been asking for. But the woman has an astounding response. Let's look at it at 27, please. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. To which Jesus then replies, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Obviously, Jesus is impressed with this woman's reply. But let's immediately recognize that Jesus is not commend, commending her because she's clever or she somehow outwitted him. Jesus is commending her because her faith is great. And so let's look at what she has to say and the first thing she says in her response to Jesus' parable is this. Yes, Lord. Meaning she is in humble agreement with all that he has said. She would not expect. She wouldn't even dare to ask that the master of, of the table should deny Israel its first right to the bread. She would not dare to ask that the master of the table should deny Israel its first right to the bread, to the messianic blessings. And yet, she says, even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And so using the same terms that Jesus used in his parable, she points out that even dogs waiting below their master's table, they're not denied the opportunity to eat whatever crumbs might fall. A crumb doesn't fall from the master's table and the master snatches it back. No, he lets it fall and he permits the dogs 
to eat. The commentator Grant Osborne provides an astute analysis about this woman's reply. This is great. He writes this. The woman's humility is striking. She willingly admits to and accepts her secondary status to the Jews and shows a perfect willingness to partake of the crumbs left over from the Jewish preeminence in the kingdom. The woman is certain that Jesus has more than enough power and authority to care for her daughter with just the leftovers. The woman is certain that Jesus has so much power, so much authority, that even the little crumbs that fall from his table are more than enough to cure her daughter. Even the crumbs from the master's table shall provide for all of her needs. Not her wants. Although she may not be fully aware of the implications of her words, she's stating an important theological principle. And it concerns the primacy of Israel. The Apostle Paul will write in his letter to the Romans this profound truth. It's God's plan. Paul writes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But we want to come first, right? But praise God, he included us in his salvation. First to God's chosen people and through the chosen people, he has elected to call us into his kingdom by grace, by mercy, not because we deserve it, but because of the goodness of God. Jesus now responds, and his reply is favorable. Verse 28, And Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour, meaning from that very moment. The question we will want to ask is this. Did Jesus change his mind? Earlier he told the Israel, he, uh, earlier he told the woman that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But now he has agreed to help her and heal her daughter. Has this woman mounted such a vigorous, persuasive counter-argument that she has successfully changed Jesus' mind? Well, on the surface it might seem so. But what does the scripture tell us about our question? Did Jesus change his mind? Let's consider what Numbers 23, 19 says. Again, Numbers 23, 19 says this. God is not a man that he should change his mind. And let's also recall what God says about himself in Isaiah 46, verse 16. God says, I know the end from the beginning. We will conclude, therefore, that Jesus did not change his mind and that he knew the outcome of all this. He knew the outcome of this exchange before it even began. It's not the case that the woman won him over by her clever argument. 
Instead, I suggest once again that Jesus knowingly placed an obstacle between her and her desire to test her faith, to see how badly she wanted it, to determine if she would trust in Jesus. Oh, so many people throw up a flag and they say, you know, Jesus, I'm going to test you on this. You, let me see if you're going to uh, answer my prayer. And if Jesus doesn't answer it right away, well, they're on their way. Jesus wants to test our faith to see if we are persistent in our prayer, whether we genuinely believe that he has the power and authority to, to do as he says. This woman showed a persis- persistent faith. She's like Jacob who wrestled with God on the banks of the Jabbok River. You remember what Jacob said? I will not let you go until you bless me. That is faith. Knowing that God has the power to do what we ask. When Jesus assesses her heart, he announces the verdict. He says to her, great is your faith. Here's one last question. Does that mean, because he said to her, great is your faith, does that mean that she needed a great faith, that she needed a, to register a 10 on the Richter scale of faith in order for Jesus to act? I think George is right. He's shaking his head. No, I don't think so either, George. On another occasion, Jesus said that even the faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. But what is most significant about Jesus referring to her faith as great is that it comes shortly after Jesus described Peter's faith as what? Little. Remember? Jesus came walking to the disciples. They were in the midst of a great storm. Jesus came walking on the water, and Peter cries out to Jesus, Lord, command me to walk on the water. Command me to come out to you. Right? And so that took faith to get out of the boat, and to walk on the water. And as long as Jesus looked in the face, as long as Peter looked into the face of Jesus, he could walk on the water. But then we are told that he looked at the wind to assess how strong it was, and that's when he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And do you remember what Jesus said? Oh, you of little faith. Well, Peter seemed to have great faith. An enormous faith compared to the vast majority of his countrymen who had no faith at all. Seems Peter had a great faith, but Jesus describes it as little. Why? Well, I would suggest that it has a lot to do with the available light, the available revelation that was available to Peter and to the woman. Peter had enormous faith compared to his countrymen, but in terms of all the miracles he had seen, of all the, not of, of all the teaching he had received from Jesus, Jesus describes his faith as little. But then think of this woman, this pagan woman. She didn't, have a, she didn't come out of a culture built on God's word. She came from a pagan culture that worshipped gods of stone and wood. She did not have the law and the prophets to inform her what the coming Messiah would do. And yet news had reached her that this Jesus of Nazareth had come. 
And he had healing in his hand. And she believed that even the smallest crumb that fell from his table was enough to heal her daughter. It was enough to supply all her needs. And so she cried out with a heart of faith, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. The question I have for us this morning is directed to those who have not yet come to Christ, who have not yet called upon the name of the Lord in faith. Before you fold up your Bibles and all in your papers, just hear me out. You may know a great deal about Jesus. You may know very little about him. Here's the thing. If you will come to him in faith, he has the power and authority to heal you. Now, please note, we are not promised by Scripture that he will heal our temporary bodies. That is entirely according to his will. But while he does not make a promise to heal our temporary bodies, he makes a 100% guarantee in regard to our eternal souls. The Bible says that whosoever shall believe in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. With just a crumb of faith, we are assured a place at the Lord's table forever. And why is that? So my God, our God, shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. And through you, through your mercies, we are not consumed. Because your compassions, they they fail not. They are new every morning. Lord, great is your faithfulness. 